0: Human culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ace Deliri. Join us as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. So I'll go right ahead and give us your introduction and then we'll get started with some questions and we'll start the conversation that way.
1: Sure. Sounds good. All right. Well, my name is Joe Norman. Um, I'm a data scientist and applied complexity scientist, um, founder of small company called Applied Complexity Science, LLC. Um, so for work, I do everything from education, complex system science education, application of of said science um, to modeling and simulation um, to uh, data science and all of the things that entails from uh, analysis to visualization to uh, building custom data interfaces for different folks um, among some other things Um, i'm my background i I studied complex systems and brain sciences at florida atlantic university um, did a dissertation on the dynamics of perception of of uh, visual perception, in particular object motion, and looked at that as a emergent, self-organizing system. Uh, after that, I went to the New England Complex Systems Institute uh, for a few years as a postdoc. Um, did a number of things there. We don't need to dig into. And um, more recently, have been a an, a regular instructor at the Real World Risk Institute, um, which Nassim Taleb and Robert Fry uh, run out of New York a few times a year. Um, so I think that kind of covers it.
0: Absolutely. That's uh, uh, that's usually actually that's how I found you on Twitter because um, we're all basically uh, you know fans of Incherto and Nassim's work, and then I noticed that you'd also co-published some work with them. Uh, One Words regarding uh, modeling climate science. Is that correct?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the climate paper is, is just sort of a companion letter to a larger, more general paper on um, a what we call a non-naive precautionary principle, um, looking at a a sort of complex systems and, and probability look at, at, um, large scale risk. So, so that's, that's the work. That's when I originally met Nassim personally, I had been a fan already. Um, especially Mm -hmm. from, from reading the Incerto and, and anti-fragile in particular really uh, caught my interest. Uh, so yeah, we, we do work and we continue to work on, on this idea of the precautionary principle. Um, so that's really about, uh, systemic, uh, risk versus, um, so tolerable risks versus intolerable risks. So okay. large, there's there's sort of this um, a class of risk that that you can define, um, which uh, there's a number of ways of, of approaching the problem. But essentially, um, when when the system you're interested in uh, has a ruined state or sort of an irreversible uh, harm can come to it, um, you're you're looking at a different kind of risk than a risk that that can be recovered from. Um, and there's a number of ways we can jump into that. So if you want to dive deeper in, we we certainly can. But I don't want to. Go too far down that rabbit hole initially, if you don't want me to.
0: No, no, no. We we want you to go as deep into the rabbit hole as you're willing to tolerate. Because, like I said, what one of the reasons why you're you're the most requested ask uh, for guests on this show, and uh, I've been wanting to speak to you for a while. And every time I've heard you on various podcasts, the 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 thing that I, that's really um, sort of got me interested in bringing you on is there, there's there's not enough of um, fodder that they're feeding into the canon of Joe's mind, right? So we want like some really hardcore in-depth conversations and uh what i want to do is i want to just get started with some basic foundational stuff we're going to lay the groundwork so that everybody following along could sort of uh jump on the train and uh see where the thought process
1: takes us sure sure well um okay well with respect to precautionary principle i mean this is a really essential um sort of uh, a piece of, of of strategy i would call it even or, or, or and potentially policy uh that we need to work out in particularly in the 21st century just because um now that we're so intensely interconnected, um, and we continue to to connect more and more and both both physically and informationally, like obviously the internet, social media, informationally we're we're connected like never before. and that's obviously having political and social consequences that we're not quite prepared for. and, and our physical and and monetary economic interconnectedness is also um, well beyond any level that we we uh, have ever had before, at least as far as we're aware of, you know, uh, barring some some kind of ancient alien civilization type scenario. Um, so, so what that means in effect is that the, the way that we've approached uh, risk up until now um, is insufficient now because every action we take or so many of the actions we take have um, this capacity to, to grow, amplify, cascade, Trigger cascades uh, interact with systems that seem distant, both uh, in, in geographic space and sort of in conceptual space. Um, so, so this, in effect, we're so interconnected that that space, in some sense, has gotten smaller. And and so now we need some kind of a um, rigorous approach to to think through. Okay, what kinds of we need we need to continue to take risks. Risks are essential for for us to evolve, for us to innovate, uh, for us to get better, progress. Uh, But at the same time, we need to be mindful of the kinds of risks we're taking and separate those into risks that we not only are acceptable, but maybe we should be hungry for and and risks that um, are just, no matter what kind of benefits or imagined benefits is typically the case, you might come up with. Um, the the potential downside that ruinous um, irreversible downside that I mentioned before just can't outweigh it and and sort of um, classic cost benefit analysis doesn't address these kinds of risks because this idea of sort of irreversibility and ruin um, really come out of of thinking in terms of complex systems and and you know this this feeds into the seams work um, quite readily because what we're really talking about here is uh, the difference probabilistically between thin tails and fat tails. So thin tails uh, roughly are where extreme events, in in any distribution, you have some kind of extreme events that are possible, but how quickly does the probability of of large scale events decay is is the question. And that's what the, that quote unquote tail is all about, that fat tail, that thin tail. Um, So we can actually understand some things about systems uh, and the structure of systems, the the agents that uh, compose and are embedded within systems, a- and without having to um, predict the future in detail, which we we really can't do so well in most cases, um, we can anticipate. You know, are we dealing with a thin-tailed, in which case uh, extreme events are are kind of bounded? There's there's sort of a limit to which how how big or how bad an event can get. Or are they, in some sense, unbounded, where there's no clear limit to how big or bad an event might get? Um, and just maybe to to tack on some intuition with this thin tail and fat tail, you could think of, you know, uh, who's the tallest person you'll ever meet? Well, you're not going to meet anybody taller than 10 feet. We can say that uh, pretty confidently. Um, now, wh- wh- who's the richest person you, you'll you ever meet? Will it be a millionaire, you know, a billionaire, a multi-billionaire? All of a sudden, now this, this monetary, this wealth... Um, variable. It doesn't behave like the height variable. It it sort of can get bigger and bigger, and there's no clear bound on who the, say, the richest person can be or who the richest person you might run across will be. So these are there's a very clean uh, separation in terms of these uh, probabilistic distributions and the features of the system that lead to these different distributions. So I'll, I'll kind of pause there and, and, and see if that makes sense to you.
0: Uh, Yeah, no, absolutely. I uh, think um, we have some follow-up questions on that. Ember, you want to take the first one? Yeah. So given the context of what you just stated, how would you define complexity science and um, how is it different from people that call science in general?
1: Okay. So complexity science is, um, it's a science about essentially the, the key term here is irreducibility. So, to get at irreducibility, it might, it might make sense to talk about, well, what is reducibility? So reducibility or, or reductionism is sort of the philosophy of reducibility, says that for every system or phenomenon I might be interested in, um, scientifically, the way I'm going to go about understanding that phenomenon is to break it into parts. In fact, a, as small a parts as I can, and the smaller, the better. And I'm going to look at the properties of each of those parts in isolation, I'm gonna study the properties, I'm gonna you know, write them down, write equations about them, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of this analysis, the idea goes, I'll know everything about the system and, and all I'll need to see is, oh, when these parts all go together, of course you know, X, Y, or Z happens. Now, in contrast to that, we, we can question whether, well, is everything explainable via reductionism or via reduction? Um, and it turns out that pretty clearly the answer is no. Um, so I'll try, to, I'll try to give you a kind of toy example to play with. Um, there's this thing called the a Mobius strip. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but anyway, it's a geometric thing. So just for anyone else listening, might not be aware, it's a geometric thing where you basically have like a strip, like think of a strip of paper that's turned 180 and then looped back on itself. So it's looped, but it's also twisted halfway right. around. In, a, in effect, what, what that generates is a, um, a topology or, or sort of a geometry that we can say that the loop is only one-sided. And, and if you kind of – you can grab a piece of paper and kind of play with it yourself. But what you'll see is that if you kind of trace, say, a pencil line across the paper, you'll kind of hit what you perceive as both sides of the loop. Um, right. And, and so we're saying this object – Mobius strip is, is one-sided, we're going to call it. But mm-hmm. if, we, if we tried to use reductionism to um, understand the source of that one-sidedness, uh, what, what we'd end up doing, so we cut up the, the Mobius strip, and now we have a bunch of pieces of the Mobius strip, and indeed, each piece of the Mobius strip will be two-sided. And mm-hmm. so, so all of a sudden, we have this sort of um, property that we've destroyed by reducing the system to parts. Um, so where is that property? How, where does it live? How do we understand that property of one-sidedness? Well, we best understand it by uh, seeing that it's a property that emerges out of the organization of the system, or in this case, the object, the Möbius strip. So it is the way it's the way the pieces um, are organized, or or the way they're configured with one another, that the property arises out of. So complexity science is really. Uh, digging into that as a problem in general with looking at systems in the world, um, what properties are, are, are reducible, what properties are irreducible, and for those irreducible properties, how do we understand where they come from, uh, what constitutes them, uh, etc. And, and, and once you, you, you um, admit of emergent properties, all sorts of things follow then, and it, it also means that we can look um, across systems that seem to be made of very different stuff. And, and right. find commonalities because they display the same patterns uh, or or they're organized in similar the same way. So so, what you find is that it's less about what is the stuff the thing is made of, and more about what patterns um, does that stuff embody?
0: Right, right. So, so in the, in a sense, because the average person who uh, would listen to what you just said, they would they would kind of ask you the following question, which is, Given what you're saying with the Mobius strip, it seems like it's an abstract concept that some mathematician somewhere would be uh, focused on. Mm-hmm. How does it apply to the real world in the sense that they could say, OK, um, I can apply some complexity science to detect bullshit sort of a, It's the thing that main main takeaway for me when I, when I listen to you guys speak about this stuff is uh, this allows you to see sort of like an example of where a group of people getting together is basically a couple of human beings, but then you put a couple of human beings and you keep increasing the numbers, all of a sudden the dynamics of all that changes. Is that where sort of your theory comes into play?
1: Oh, oh, right. I mean, you're keying on, it comes into play uh, all over the place, but with respect to uh, your comment on detecting bullshit, I mean, Mm -hmm. you're quite right that that so often the situation is that there's an assumption that things either scale linearly. So like you said, if you add more and more people, that's just like, you know, uh, a billion people is just like, uh, one person, but a billion times over. No, a billion people behave much differently than one person times a billion. Um, and, and, and so more generally, the um, emergent properties are extremely difficult to predict and precisely because they're irreducible. So the way we tend to try to predict is to try, try to reduce and then extrapolate uh, from that reduction, from what we learned in that reduction. And that extrapolation uh, process by definition, in some sense, misses those emergent properties, um, because we've reduced to, to decide how to extrapolate. So so in general, um, uh, one of the problems of predictability uh, in the real world is that emergent properties are normal, they're general, they're all over the place, there's nothing special about them. Um, and th- that, in turn, um, puts some, some severe limits on our ability to predict uh, what will unfold in a system. And so like some practical examples of what, well, okay, what's an emergent property or emergent behavior that might matter? Um, I mean, think of uh, of financial crises and bank runs. Um, these are systemic dynamics that emerge out of the interactions of all the agents in the system. There's no sort of, um, it's not that a bank run can be uh, one person going to the bank um, and getting out money. No, that happens independently. So the interaction, but when the interactions begin, when, you know, you see me go to the bank and you realize, oh, you're taking out your money because you don't have trust in this bank anymore. And then you do the same and then someone else sees you and sees me. So we have this kind of cascade dynamic I'm describing here. Um, and that's an example of like an emergent property in an in a economic system or a banking system um, that, that's not really obvious um, from a reductionistic uh vantage point but but once you see the way that the system and not just the system but its interactions and i was talking about sort of organization the way the parts are organized so so just another term that that's really important here is interactions the way the pieces are interacting with one another that's where the phenomenon of interest is coming out of and so with with respect to the precautionary principle so much of what well, well there's the the difficulty in prediction uh due to emergent properties and there's also this sort of um General problem of cascades in systems that have a lot of interactions and strong interactions among the components, w- which um, we're now sort of building into the world in, in, in a way that it didn't exist before.
0: Right, right. So, uh, when you, as you were describing that process, I was just thinking of two examples where, for example, you're in a theater and everybody's got an entrance and an exit, and everything is fine as long as the, the, the flow of, of, of the people coming in and out is, is, is relatively tame. But you know, fire, and all of a sudden, people get trampled. Right. So that's an instance of unpredictability, because, you know, um, when you walk into the theater, the odds of of an actual fire happening are pretty low. But then there's the flip side of that equation, which is when you see these Black Friday sales where, you know, going in that if you're in the front of that line, you are more likely than not to get trampled. Yet people still proceed to engage in these activities. So sort of like sometimes even if you can predict the emergent property in this particular context of what you're talking about, it still doesn't mean you can control it. Would that be accurate?
1: Oh, that, that's absolutely accurate. Uh, just just knowing does not imply, or, or just understanding something does not imply the ability to control. There's a lot of other conditions that would need to be met um, in order to control something. And, and, and so, y- your your comment had me go in a couple different directions. One, um, there's this. Let, let's go back to this kind of panic idea, mm. and let's go back to this. Um, you know, we redu- failure of reductionism. Say. Um, Panic is indeed, it can be an individual event, but when it happens in a social setting, it has a mm-hmm. contagious quality. Right. So um, someone panicking near you uh, revs up your physiology and puts you closer to the threshold of panicking. So you may or may not panic um, and might depend on your life experiences, et cetera, et cetera, but you may or may not panic. But in mm-hmm. general, it is socially contagious. Now, this is mm-hmm. something that can lead to Uh, Like a collective panic or collective mania, like in the Black Friday sales and things like that, where all those individuals say they all went shopping on different days. None of them are going to sort of uh, go, go nuts. But somehow all together, the individuals go nuts. So it's not only that the collective system is now behaving in ways that weren't predictable, but even the components in that system and you you hear terms like downward causation and things like that. So even the components in that system are now behaving differently or doing something differently uh, because of this emergent phenomenon. So so it's a very um, it's a kind of thing that's just that reductionism is just blind to fundamentally. Um, because all of a sudden now a component is taking on different behaviors depending on uh, the context it finds itself in. Well, well, this is not what we understand from reductionism. What we understand is all of the properties flow out of the properties of the parts or components.
0: That's interesting because I'll I'll bring that to to uh, something with regards to the financial markets because I've seen um, examples where uh, somebody misquoted Warren Buffett by just uh, he says you know the uh, it's the way he said the phrase. It's like the, I'm trying to remember the exact phrase of it, but he. He said the word in such a way that if you if you remove the apostrophe, it sounds like everybody should sell off. when you know he reissues a, a restatement, and all of a sudden the markets go in one direction. And mm-hmm. Contrast that with Nassim when he comes on and he's in his full um, you know uh, probability mode, and he's just saying, "Look, this is all bull. We're gonna we're gonna have another financial crisis." Yet he's easily dismissed by these whole people that should very much be listening to him. So how do you account for the fact that both Nassim and, and, and Warren are obviously uh, extraordinarily talented at, at managing risk and money, yet one's, one guy's word is uh, you know a misprint causes a whole downturn. another guy is just constantly and, and you know I'm a huge fan in the scene, but I, sometimes when I speak to people about his work, the, the constant threat that comes back to them is oh he's just a crank. And I'm like, well, that's not necessarily a nuanced or very uh, reasoned approach to, to dismiss his works. It's more of a why, why, why do you think it is that, that both these people who obviously understand these um, financial markets, one's word, sort of speak, in this particular emergent uh, system, uh, has such a massive effect where the other one doesn't? And Nassim's eventually will outlive uh, Warren's. That's just my take on the <laughs> old issue, um, because he's going to be very, very – and he's kind of like Christopher Hitchens for me in that regard, where while he's uh, around – People are kind of just taking him for granted. And then once he's no longer with us, his works will speak for, for, for centuries to come.
1: Well, okay. So, I mean, there's a couple things here is, um, for one, there's no immediate and obvious sort of uh, action to take um, mm. based off uh, of, of what Nasim is saying. Now, there are obvious things that you should be doing. So I don't mean that to say that there's not but I mean, for those who are hungry for, I want to make a trade now. I want to make money right now, um, sort of right. that immediate payoff type of thing. Nassim saying, you know, one of the things that that people um, generally want to do is to find patterns, to see patterns, whether they're conscious of it or not. They they they're sort of looking for patterns, and, and we all know, and you know, Nassim's Fool by Randomness book, et cetera. But we all know that. We can see patterns where there are none, and that's that's because of the way our uh, nervous system is set up, and 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 that and how important patterns are to us. So we see patterns where there are none. With respect to, um, say, time series, say a financial series that's behaving in this this kind of fat-tailed way, I mean, what you'll see all the time are these subsequences. You know, it sort of looks like it's quote-unquote trending up. It's quote-unquote trending down. And it's it's very tempting to assign that narrative to it. It's trending up. And not only is it trending up, but here's why. But it turns out that that if you just take random draws from, from like this kind of a probability distribution, power law, fat tail, whatever, you're going to have those subsequences all the time. That, that's sort of just a matter of, of course, it's the, the randomness manifesting itself in the system. What's so important to understand about this distinction between the thin tails and the fat tails is that in a uh, fat-tailed process, the extreme events dominate the entire history of the process. So mm-hmm. it doesn't—it doesn't matter if I was trending up for ten years. I can wipe all that out in an hour, um, right. and and worse. So this is in, in a thin-tail domain. You don't have uh, dynamics like this. It would take anything that it would take 10 years to build up it would take 10 years to to build down as well there's Mm the 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 largest movements in the system come from the accumulation of a bunch of events they don't come from in these single events high impact um dwarfing the the rest of the entire history of the process potentially and that's in fact sort of the uh, a rigorous way of defining fat tails it's any uh any distribution whose statistics are dominated by the tails um, mm. versus the body of the distribution and um, so I think that's one important reason why people uh, will will sort of cling to one and and, and and reject another is that there's not a there's not a nice narrative to fill the narrative vacuum with when you first let go of well you know, it's going down because of this, and but it might go up because of that and that kind of narrative and, and linear causal thinking. Um, mm. th- th- there's a humility involved, an epistemic humility in saying, no, look at what the data is actually saying. and The data is actually saying that, you know, for instance, and this is something Robert Fry has, has analyzed formally, uh, the Great Depression was bad, obviously, but that was nothing, and we can have much worse. Um, mm. and, and so this kind of when you start to incorporate that into your your frame into your gut um, you realize that a lot of the the more say i, I don't want to badmouth Warren Buffett obviously a very successful guy um, mm. but that sort of narrative fallacy that might be associated with that kind of an investor now but i will say that's something very important uh, that Nassim and Buffett have in common uh, it, you know what, what what how did Buffett's quip go of you know first to first survive basically is the idea <laughs> right 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 uh, right and this is the whole idea of the precautionary principle. It's, hey, no, it's not that we're saying that none of the benefits of this or that intervention are possible. They're possible, but the risk is so large that we have to take precaution in this case because our first job is to survive. Without that, we've got nothing. So um, that's a really something they share in common um, and, and probably accounts for, for both of their success in, in a very important way.
0: So in a, in a regard for our, our listeners, uh, I just want to have, have you sort of explain a couple of things. Uh, so when when it comes to fat tales, as you said, the event uh, surpasses the entire history of it. So, for example, the Fukushima power plant melting down, the amount of money they may have generated as profit for that plant got destroyed on that one day when the the plant melted down, right? So sort of uh, when when Lehman Brother goes, Lehman Brothers goes down, the amount of money they lost on that one day is more than the total amount that they've made for the rest for their entire history. So right. in these particular, in these particular examples, can you give us some more examples of, of what are, what are dominated by thin tail, uh, categories? Like you said earlier, 10 years to build 10 years to destroy. And what are areas where there's lots of fat tails? And, and I think there's an area where there may be a little bit of overlap and there's areas where people think it's 10 tail when it's really fat tailed and vice versa. Are you able to sort of give us some examples so that people can have a clear understanding of, okay, this is a thin tailed event, or this is a thin tail, um, sort of area and I know what to look for versus this one, which is like everybody's saying go buy Bitcoin. Meanwhile, it may not be you know, exactly building up value for the next 10 years. It may just go to zero tomorrow.
1: Sure. So, so let's just talk first in, in general and then we can uh, maybe, maybe hit some examples. So sure. the general idea or, or one of the general, say, properties of a system that might display fat tails is some kind of contagion in the system. So if some event happens, and, and this is this is also you can think of this probabilistically as a loss of independence among events. So some some event happens, and now that changes the distribution of, of uh, the events that might happen next. Now when this happens in, in sort of like a positive feedback manner, um, you can get, you know, this is connected to something I mentioned: cascades, propagation, etc., amplification. Um, you got this kind of domino effect where, okay, so if it, 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 let's say we did a podcast in the room together, we're doing a distribute, let's say we did it together and you come mm. in and uh, you know, you've got Ebola, um, mm. but you're like, yeah, I'm gonna tough this out for the podcast, whatever. <laughs> uh, and um, now has my probability conditional on that event taking place of you getting Ebola and coming to the, to the podcast studio, has my probability of catching Ebola changed? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so you can see there's a contagion, and this leads to a non-independence of those events, and that is where fat tails arise from. And so, so then, uh, contra that, thin tails arise from just those situations where you lack those properties. So, um, independence of events. It doesn't matter um, if. Something happens over here. It has no effect on something that happens over there. And this is actually why uh, the the sort of interconnectedness of the globe is so important for thinking about risk, because it used Mm -hmm. to be that things were separated by space Mm -hmm. such that the effects had dissipated by the time, uh, you know, the effect of one event had reached another event. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so statistically, they were they were essentially they were weakly interdependent or essentially independent. And so thin tails come out of that independence of of things that are not connected and, th- and and that's to circle back a little bit that's one of the important connections here with complexity science because in complexity science we're really thinking about how are things interconnected how, what are their interdependencies um so so you know things like uh, what's another example so we'll talk about viral contagion so pandemics right uh, this is a fat-tailed risk um Precisely because it's a contagion problem. It's, it's, um, I might call it a multiplicative dynamic. Mm. I mean, pa- power outages and in interconnected power networks and power grids, um, you know, power outages happen small ones all the time. And every once in a while, there's a really big one. And despite the fact that our uh, understanding of the physics of the engineering around uh, power transmission is so um, sophisticated relative to some of our other understanding. It's they mm-hmm. still surprise us. They still scale larger than uh, the phys- known physics anticipate. And, and why? Well, it's because there's these emergent properties of these interconnected and interdependent systems. Um, so economic systems, once again, our global, um, we now have a global economy. There's not really separate economies. And so when a downturn happens somewhere, it can trigger a downturn everywhere. Um, informationally we now have uh, cascades clearly from social media you know one tweet from someone no one's ever heard of can uh, turn a political discussion and potentially the political outcome uh, you know on a dime uh, 180 degrees so so in all of these cases we're talking about systems that there's you know amplification contagion um, positive feedback so there's these structural type of properties in the system that will manifest fat tails and really thin tails are, are when you either have independence or you have some, um, say, logical bounding. Like, for instance, in human height, um, a lot of the, the, the reason that's thin tailed is because, well, humans have a characteristic size and you can only give birth to a baby so large. So there's these kind of other bounds on the system uh, that, that we can feel pretty confident about. So, in this, so if we were in a room together and I had Ebola, the odds of you getting Ebola are pretty high.
0: But if I had, let's say, a, uh, you know, a torn rotator cuff, that doesn't really affect you because the, the right. boundary layer between my shoulder and yours are clearly defined. Right. So, and, and when you talked about earlier, about you talked about space giving us the ability to dissipate the, the, the uh, contagion process. Is it because the speed of, of, of travel is now so faster, so much faster than it used to be? that in the fact that I can jump on a plane and I could be from here to tour in Italy in you know less than a day. And if I do happen to have Ebola, I can just transmit it to all the people in that world. Is that is that the process that? That's, that's, that's precisely really- it.
1: So you can travel far quickly. Information can travel far, essentially instantly, relative to the timescales we live on. Um, and, and not only that, but that that adds a um, these long range connections into the system, and mm-hmm. all this uncertainty too. Because if you're trying to say predict what's going on where. You know, where is Ace tomorrow? I have no idea. If you jumped on a plane, you could be anywhere. Right. Um, so, so, right. so that's exactly right.
0: So then, let's think about it this way. So we talked about long, uh, thin-tailed, in the sense that it takes years and years of accumulation. So let's 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 run a thought experiment. We take McDonald's and we make it worldwide, and we're selling everybody crap from from Afghanistan, although it is Zimbabwe, and over a period of let's say you know fifty years, a whole generation of people have been brought up eating this noise and this junk food. Now what happens when all of a sudden the accumulation of that garbage starts to manifest itself in higher um, healthcare costs everywhere you go? How do we sort of ascribe that situation? Is that a whole different thing all in its own? Is it, is it just emerging now because it's a different set of uh, problems? Or is that just a, a continuation of
1: the thin-tail problem in a different domain? Well, I mean, I mean, what we're talking about sort of a global-scale franchise is clearly enabled by the existence of these technologies, information and 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 transportation technologies, so so it's not separate from that. In that sense, um, you don't really have the infrastructure to manage or or um, implement a global franchise without those things. So it's a, it's a totally a product of those. Now, with respect to. Um, sort of the homogenous exposure. Now, let's just, you know, extreme example case. Now McDonald's takes over the world food supply and everyone is fed on McDonald's, right? So you Mm -hmm. do now, now that you're um, exposing everyone to the same, let's say, agent, um, you're introducing a systemic risk in that process because you have, it's a new experiment. You never run the experiment of what happens if everyone eats McDonald's their whole life. You might not really have even run the experiment of what happens if one person eats McDonald's their whole life. And so, um, that's the kind of place where we really need epistemic humility is to say, you know, some things, so we're talking about McDonald's. That's easy to kind of say, well, that's junk, but what about something a very sensitive topic, uh, vaccines, you know, the, the anti-vax versus the vax. Um, I don't really fall into either camp because I have a healthy skepticism, um, especially for novel things that don't have a track record. And 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 vaccine is too large of a category to really say, oh, they're all good because you don't know. If I develop a new vaccine tomorrow and it turns out that it's bad, then are all vaccines good? And obviously not. And, and so one of the concerns that I do have is not of any particular um, vaccine. Um, but the idea that there's sort of this central bureaucracy that determines what vaccines everyone gets sort of simultaneously in sync, that now presents a systemic risk that's not um, present by, by independent decision-making. Um, you know, if you can choose what you're getting and I can choose what I'm getting, then we have so, some thin-tailedness there because we're choosing independently, presumably. Um, so, so this is – once again, I, I think that uh, in general – In a general sense, vaccination is a good thing, a great discovery, and uh, it makes sense to get vaccines, but um, we still have to have humility with respect to how do we implement these and and when we have new technologies, new innovations in this space, um, how do we roll those out and how do we uh, track uh, the effects, which can, you know, in, in, in living systems, uh, the effects of something so systemic can take years and years to manifest. I mean, look at something like uh, mad cow disease, prion disease. Um, people can have these things in their body for, you know, 20 years. Then all of a sudden one day the, the feedback cycle kicks in and all of a sudden they're, they're gone. Um, so, so, so that's just adding another challenge on to how do we even track the cause and effect in, in, in these kinds of systems. Makes sense. Makes sense.
0: All right. So how do we accept novel things without risk associated?
1: We, we, novelty always brings risk because novelty is by definition uncertain. You bring uncertainty in the system. You don't know what all of the interactions will be of whatever you're introducing. Mm-hmm. So there's no novelty without risk. Um, so, so one of the things is that we need to have a healthy appetite for risk so that we can okay. uh, discover novel things that, that are beneficial to us. The the challenge has to uh, is that we need to have a clear view on when the kinds of risks that we're talking about um, have clear upper bounds or thin ta- thin tails um, versus when there's no clear um, upper bound or, or, or it's a fat tail by by all accounts and, and by all analysis and so for instance uh, you know in in the precautionary principle paper that we released we use. Um, GMO agriculture and, and or wild release GMO generally it doesn't need to be agriculture it could be other ecosystem uh, engineering projects, eradicating mosquitoes whatever it might be, um, we're calling in into question the the sanity of this constant wild release of perfectly novel um, organisms precisely because they have these contagion effects. They have these interaction effects. They are interacting with ecosystems which have a huge amount of interdependence or are set up for cascades, et cetera, et cetera. And when you look at not only how um, – what are the properties of the organism, but how are um, those parties that are putting them into the environment, how are they doing that? And, and you look, okay, they're doing it globally – and because we have this global transport any agents any biological agents say that get into the environment can end up anywhere else in the world easily i mean it's not a big deal for some say pollen or some virus to to stick on a plane or in a plane and and get across the world um so it's it's not that we can ever have novelty or innovation without risk it's that we um we're in the situation now where if we don't get clear-headed about the kinds of risks that we can tinker with now technologically, then we're going to kill ourselves. And in fact, I mean, it doesn't matter how low the probability is of a ruin event. Um, if you continue to take those kinds of risks um, over time, they, they pretty rapidly aggregate to probability one. So meaning guarantee it's going to happen. So there's this kind of um, one-off um excusing that that's often done. Well, you know, yeah, it is, you know, and this is even someone taking a step in the right direction. So of saying, well, yeah, it is risky. So they acknowledge that, but you know, it's worth it because look at how this good side will be. And maybe they've even taken one off risks before like that and everything worked out. The problem mm-hmm. is that, that, um, that logic justifies itself to, to, you know, recur over and over. And so, you can't take the one-off risk without taking the two-off risk, three-off risk. They all self-justify the next risk. Um, right. and, and, and so you know, it, it, it's just, if we're not, the, the truth is that I, I don't know if we'll get our act together or not as a species, but if we don't around these kinds of risks, I mean, we're screwed.
0: Right, right. A sort of follow-up on the, the concept of uh, the, the last uh, conversation that Eric Weinstein had with uh, Joe Rogan, and he was saying that the clock started when we had... The discovery of the nuclear um, uh, secrets, and then we had DNA manipulation, add to that the growing potential of information exchange via the internet and computers, your, 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 your concern on this front, as far as I can understand it, is that novelty in itself is not a terrible thing as long as it's contained within a small sample size in a geographical area where we limit its exposure to the rest
1: of the environment. Would that be an accurate way to describe it? And and it could be, it could be a very good thing. It's not that it can only not be a bad thing. It can be a very good thing. Yes. But, but for something to something that's good to emerge um, and to sort of spread in a reasonable time, like a reasonable time that doesn't present this huge systemic risk, it needs to grow slowly. So, so the adoption rate has to be something reasonable where, okay, we've tried it in this, zone or something and we've you know we've been doing this for 40 years or, or whatever depending on what you're doing um, like for instance you know one of the things that comes up over and over with the GMO stuff is like mm-hmm. um, well is there anything you could do for GMO and the answer is yeah like I, I like to use um, virus research as, a, as an example it's like we know like we have the intuition about the contagion uh, involved in in viruses right that's what they're all about is they go in they replicate they're contagious. So what, what what do we do for folks that research viruses? We don't say, oh, no, you can't research viruses. No, but they have very strict and clear protocols and infrastructure so that there is a uh, minimization or mitigation of the potential for contamination across some, some very uh, serious boundaries. And that's still a huge risk. It's not that, OK, now everything's fine. There's no risk. But at least there's, in that case, the recognition that we have a system whose essential dynamics are that of contagion. Um, so let's buffer this off from the rest of the world, at least the best we can. Um, and you know, genetically modified bacteria for you, for instance, used, uh, in insulin production. And that's great. You know, you keep it in the lab, it's inside, there's, there's boundaries, there's, there's, uh, you know walls and, 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 and there's checkpoints and airlocks and all of this stuff because you, you don't want that to mix with the environment precisely because you have no idea how those event, those effects will cascade in the environment because you do have a self-replicating, uh, contagious type of dynamic. And, and so um, it's not about, you know, this thing is bad or that thing is good. It's what the, the thing needs to go if something bad happened, if a cascade was triggered, if something was really terrible, what would stop that cascade? And in the case of our current practices with GMO and the, and the you know corporate practices with GMO, there's no clear upper bound. The ocean doesn't stop it because of the the transportation of the stuff. Um, you know, land doesn't stop it. There's no clear boundary about uh, which would stop the spread of, of of some harmful cascade.
0: What would you say is the fundamental difference between complex and ordered? Complicated
1: systems. Fundamental difference between complex and ordered or complicated systems. Yes. Um, so we can talk about, um, say, order versus complexity, and um, what you find with with what we consider complex systems in the real world, sort of that like gut level. You know, what's a complex system? Is um, they have many scales of behavior. So so this is one of the reasons that like fractal geometry. Uh, can be so attractive is because uh, you have some kind of geometry where it's sort of the more you zoom in the more details you find and uh, the other way around the more you kind of zoom out the more uh, structure information still persists and so this kind of multi-scale order uh, is associated with complexity whereas what we typically think of as order is often at a single scale so there, there's like a you know a crystallization is highly ordered material is a crystal um, and if you zoom out, zoom out, zoom out of a crystal, well, very quickly, the, the, there's so much informational redundancy. Um, there's no new information there. It's sort of like, oh yeah, every, every, every you know, atom or whatever has a few neighbors and every other atom is exactly the same. Um, so that's sort of ordered versus complex in some sense. Now we could talk about disorder as well and like an ideal gas. Um, So you imagine a bunch of molecules independently bouncing around some container Um, in some sense, that's a very complex system from a computational complexity perspective, because if I was to describe the state of that ideal gas, because each molecule is bouncing around independently, so they're not crystallized, they're not coherent, there's not ordered. I'd have to describe each one, the position, the velocity of every single one. Um, So there's a very long string that's needed to describe uh the state of that system but on the other hand it's because it's maximally disordered at a small scale if i start to zoom out or kind of blur the image uh because of the central limit theorem because of this is where thin tails come from we lose very quickly there is nothing more to describe the movement of each independent molecule averages out with all of the others and um so so that's sort of disorder versus order. You can think of ideal gas disorder, order crystal, and neither of these sort of satisfy what we intuitively find as complex, and that's really that multi-scale uh, case where you have, um, as you zoom in, there's more details. As you zoom out, there's more details. There's sort of information at, at every scale.
0: Is this, is this where, you, uh, where you find the flaws to why polling data is always wrong? Because an individual you can speak to about their particular beliefs versus a group of people that you polled and they may not necessarily tell you exactly what they feel because they're afraid of repercussions, but yet somehow the world still depends on quote-unquote polling data. Is that sort of the boundary between ordered and disordered and
1: complex and complicated? Well, can you say more about why? I, I'm not tracking the, your, your mapping. So
0: sure. So what I mean in that regard is that um, we, there's, there's lots of money spent on asking people how they feel about a particular thing. For example, mm-hmm. in Canada, when we rolled out the legalization of marijuana, there was a lot of talk uh, about how do you feel about this you know what do you what do you think of all this you know should we legalize it should we not legalize it so individual people that were polled for this particular uh group started off with a focus group so you know a bunch of people different groups ages and whatnot talk to them so they give you one set sort of pieces of information within a confined room and then they extrapolated that further out and they didn't really get into the details of it in the sense of saying hey you know if we do legalize marijuana what ends up happening is there's a whole layer of stuff that we didn't really talk about for example all the people who have criminal records for previous behavior of something that was, quote unquote, illegal yesterday, but is legal today. So this whole area of order and disorder is sort of uh, disguised from the actual general public. They don't really see everything that's there. And so it, they're kind of bamboozled into, into following a set of ideas that don't necessarily make sense. So what I'm getting from all that and from what you just stated to me is that the behavioral theory of looking at something on in in, in one layer and assuming it's the same at a higher layer, but it's it's still not really fully up to scale because you can talk to a guy in a room, he'll give you one set of answers, and that same guy will give you the same set of answers, more than likely, if he's in a room with five or six people. But if he's by himself all together in a, in a, in a voting booth, he's gonna give you something totally different that's more likely to be honest. Yet mm-hmm. we still seem to be fooled by this idea of let's do polls.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, I, there, there's a number of issues you're speaking to there, and one is, the, is that feature of complex systems which are that uh the context matters a lot Mm. so the the it's not that a person always has the same response to the same question you know are you asking them on television are you in a room privately with them are you best friends are you a journalist Mm. um are do they know your name um so so i would say that with respect that's sort of the most uh relevant kind of uh complexity concept that i that i feel coming in here and 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 this is certainly related to that multi-scale order in the sense that um because the system is complex when we try to extrapolate from from one situation we think we've we've sort of distilled it down to its essential components and then we uh extrapolate that to actually a different situation there's not a clear clean mapping between those two so, is so, there a so, gap
0: that you can identify where those mappings fail is there like a way to tell
1: well i mean frankly uh in the to 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 first order there is no proxy so mm. someone answering a poll is someone answering a poll someone voting is someone voting those are two different things so um we, we've gotten very comfortable with the idea that we have all these proxies by which to to estimate things and it turns out that they're not Nearly as good as people thought, or people have treated them, and and so um, you know this this something else that that's come up a lot on online and on Twitter is like this IQ stuff, and, and you know many psychologists treat an IQ test or a test on an IQ score as a proxy for some um, idea of quote unquote raw intelligence, right? So right um, right. But, but someone taking a test is someone taking a test, and someone behaving intelligently in an ecological environment or in the real world is someone doing just that. And those are two different things. So it, it for me, I have a high threshold uh, for which that I'll accept that some proxy is actually relevant to the thing that we're supposedly interested in. Like no, I don't really care someone's IQ test score. I, I'll interact with them. I'll – do a project with them. I'll, you know, speak to them about some topic. Th- then maybe I can start gauging how intelligent I feel this person is. For instance, um, but it's, it, you know, notice one important thing here is I'm talking about interaction with that person. I'm also not thinking that I can formalize the process uh, by which I extract that. So this idea that there, there there's a clean proxy uh, for complex systems is it, just kind of BS. Um, right. So, so, so I think that with respect to polls and voting, I think taking a poll and voting are two different things. They also happen at different times, right? right. So like the right, idea sure. that that things haven't changed between the poll and the vote is also absurd. So there's just <laughs> there's just almost nothing that's similar about the two things. Um, mm-hmm. you know and, and 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 obviously, there's sort of the Nate Silver stuff, and you know, he gets it wrong, but he's still right, kind of thinking, whatever. So, so yeah, I, I have, I personally have no confidence in polls, and 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 you know, it, it, and the more um, the media tries to uh, shame people for you know having wrong thought, think, you know, wrong think, wrong opinions, mm-hmm. um, the more you're going to distort, and the the less uh, accurate that proxy will be in the case of polls, because you know people are just gonna. People people are by and large smart, so they're not going to um, offer up in general um, information that would turn them into a target. Yeah,
0: right. No. So the, the other example of that, that clear cut one, is if you watch Tom Brady when he was trying out, and every single quote unquote test they put in front of him, he failed to the right. extent where they were like they they wanted, they barely drafted the guy, but meanwhile put him in the Super Bowl in the fourth quarter, and he's he's you know he's made of steel, right? So well, that proxy you New know,
1: England. So this is you know Tom Brady is good one. <laughs> um, so so yeah, I mean, I, I mean not only that though, but so the tests didn't do a good job. I mean, this is a team sport with with strong interdependencies among the players. So it's not only that the test did a bad job of predicting Tom Brady. We also don't know what would have happened if Tom Brady went to a different team. Maybe you would have never heard of him. Um, true. So so it's you know, it's the other players, the coaching system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, the, the core idea of, of complex systems is that the parts and the whole, um, have some non-trivial relationship with one another. So the whole contextualizes the part, the parts interact to develop a non-trivial whole. Um, so, so this kind of trying to isolate and in sports stats, I mean, why can't sports stats people just make a, a shit ton of money all the time? And the reason is because, well, reductionism doesn't work. Right, 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 right. Makes sense.
0: All right. So, given what we just discussed, should we just talk away from these? Uh, should we just, uh, sorry, walk away from these toxic
1: tests? I mean, in 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 large part, yes. Um, they are probably uh, stealing more resources than they are adding value in most cases. <laughs> um, there, 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 there's some. I mean, you know. There's certainly cases where uh, proxies make a lot of sense. There's a lot of medical diagnostic tests that um, are, you know, by proxy because you can't really look directly at the state of the the biological system. So you have to, you know, measure something in, in the blood or something like that. And so that that's by proxy as well. Now, sometimes this makes a lot of sense and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but yeah I mean we've put it we've put way too much faith in in the ability to to do that. And moreover, I mean in the the diagnostics case, you can still even if a proxy is decent, you could still induce uh, pathological behavior by, for instance, trying to chase a single variable um, and, and you're not really addressing you know that's really a symptom that you're chasing rather than the the root of the problem
0: yeah in in that regard, I, I always found it funny how because um, when I was younger, I was very much into you know, Bodybuilding and weightlifting, all that stuff, and how they tried to find the quote unquote active ingredient within a particular plant or herb or whatever, and just sell you that thing because right. all the other stuff was was according to their definition inert, and so they're just dismissed uh, and and as, as we've learned from that scene is the stuff that really works is almost always silent right because you don't hear from it
1: well and and it's it's even worse now, I mean so back to the gMO stuff and and kind of the mm. the global corporate Monsanto bear or whatever crap. So um, in Roundup, which is now Mm. getting some airtime, it's something probably a bit more dangerous than than we were sold. Um, You know, they sell Roundup and and, and they're keying in on the quote unquote active ingredient glyphosate. Mm. And certainly glyphosate is something to be concerned about in and of itself. But Roundup contains a whole bunch of proprietary what they call adjuvants, which are designed to increase the biological penetration of the glyphosate. Um, mm. So they do that by uh, perturbing the immune system, stirring it up and and some other things. And so these are <laughs> listed as inactive. And I mean, can you imagine anything more active in a biological system than something designed <laughs> to penetrate it? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, abs- it's absurd. So um, just, you know, you got me thinking of that, talking about the active and active ingredients, but you're exactly right. I mean, even, you know, vitamins and supplements and everything suffer from uh being introduced in isolation which is much different than eating something that contains that thing you know uh, there's things they call cofactors, meaning stuff that comes along with it that uh encourages or aids in digestion or causes some other things so so in general um things alone uh are different than than things that come together i mean we know this in some sense um just looking at you know, th- there is a sensitivity to like drug interaction effects, um, but once again, this is sort of treated as a special case. So look out for the interactions, but no, in fact, it's very general for things to have interaction effects, especially when we're talking sense. about biological systems.
0: Makes sense. So let's go back, and uh, I want to bring you the the most common um, uh, rebuttal I get to the GMO conversation, which is that. So first of all, just so that uh, we are on the same page, one of the problems with the GMO. Uh, approach is that they're essentially uh, p-hacking in the sense that they're doing 50 experiments and the one that passed quote-unquote of a limited constraint in time and space is the one they think works so they'll go out and push it out there and so right off the bat that in itself sort of a suspicious behavior to say okay look um it passed
1: within a very constricted set of guidelines you know you know what though you're actually giving them too much credit that doesn't even (laughs) happen yeah, yeah, p hacking is one step beyond what, what their level of honesty. No, no, no. They they don't. They've spent all their money not on p hacking, but on pr and and uh, you know what's known as um, astroturfing and and sort mm-hmm. of um, trying to you know catch them pr trying to quote unquote correct the conversation on Twitter um, with, with trolls and shills and whatnot. And so they haven't even. They're not even doing that. That would be one step better than what they're doing, frankly. So, <laughs> you know what? I, think that's, I know that, that sounds shocking. crazy, but it's true. It, yeah.
0: it is because we're all under the impression that if you're working in a, in a lab and you're working on genetically, quote, modifying things, that you should have a PhD and a, a pretty good grasp of statistics and probability and errors and, you know, uh, some of the general science stuff that you, you touched on. I guess we're all under the impression that just because you're working at one of these companies, it doesn't mean that you actually know
1: what you're doing, Right. It doesn't mean you know what you're doing. It doesn't mean that you're honest. Uh, It doesn't mean uh, also in general being, let's forget these companies. Let's go back to those sort of uh, academic scientists and whatnot. There Mm. is, so let let me put it in in the most direct terms. I was Mm. very disappointed to find that even in the domain of complex system science,
2: Mm.
1: when I went to the conferences, you'd find almost nothing but reductionists. Okay, mm-hmm. so at least complex system scientists are aware that there's something called reductionism, and there might be some limitations to that approach. Nevertheless, it's still the sort of um, personality type that gets into sort of acad- academics for the long term, especially in today's day and age, um, where they have this this tendency to reduce. so mm-hmm. they' and now outside of of that domain in science, there's um, there's not awareness of the assumptions that people are using they're, they're leveraging assumptions that they're entirely unaware of they're completely hidden to them and they don't know that there's other possibilities that in fact these other possibilities are manifesting themselves all around us so yeah you know there's no reason to assume that just because someone has a phd or it, you know does lab science or something like that that they are aware of um any of the kinds of things that we've been talking about any of them mm. um, So that- it, some, something that we're kind of reaching, in many ways, the, the limits of reductionistic science. And um, you can you can see that in the plethora of papers that are produced that say essentially nothing.
0: Right. So, so the question I had for you on that front is, so let's say you give me two conclusions and Ember gives me two conclusions. And then I build a whole new hypothesis based on the four conclusions that you guys have drawn from me. But what I forgot to do, even though that, that chain of reasoning may be valid... What I forgot to take into account is the scale at which your assumptions hold true, and right. therefore, once I push it past that region, it it crumbles on the foundational level, and then we don't really know why, and we get all upset about it. Is that what's is that what you're starting to see with the people who are defending all these uh, GMO branded uh, conversations? Is that is that their their whole shtick, which is like, hey, these are all solid foundations of assumptions built on conclusions of other people's work. Is that is that where they're, are they even making it that far? I'm, I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt.
1: Right, so let's try to be as charitable as possible. Yeah. Um, a- a- <laughs> unfortunately, in this case, it's really a case where they've tried to, um, how to put it, leverage the sort of social standing of science and to posture yes. as if what they're doing is science or scientifically grounded or uh, based in science or something. But it's actually not the case. What's happened is uh, they've developed some technologies and they're conflating this idea of development of a technology with scientific understanding, especially outside of the scales that they develop the technology in. And, and, and so there's sort of this, uh, I'll, I'll say intentional conflation and I'll say intentional just because there, are, there is a marketing strategy at play here. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and so it, it's, it's all of the things you're saying, but in this case, it's worse. Um, mm-hmm. Now, in, in, the chari- in the most charitable case, it is the case that the assumptions um, are gone unquestioned, are mostly uh, – uh, most are unaware of them, and the task now is to bring those assumptions to light, make them explicit, test where they hold, test where they don't. And always be mindful of the fact that uh, we are always making assumptions as we move forward. And some of those assumptions, you know, if you're wrong about them, no big deal. Some of them, if you're wrong about them, very big deal. Um, So so getting getting our assumptions in line with the real world is is kind of, uh, in my opinion, one of the biggest tasks right now in, in in uh, sort of foundational science, basic science, and getting that stuff right, and especially in applied science and applied complexity science, where we need to um, be reasoning uh, with models that whose assumptions at least uh, respect the real world if don't exactly match it all the time.
0: So that's interesting because the argument they they like what I've seen, and I didn't really know the the problem with GMOs until I met uh, you know your your work and and seams work. Was that if you leave it unchallenged, because initially the argument is, oh, look, we're, pe- we're feeding poor people in a country where they'll have very limited access to roads and, and transportation and the climate is very, uh, you know, arid and we can't really get water in there. So they can't grow their rice. So we're helping them. And we ignore that. And then eventually becomes too um, fake meat in, in, in the Western world. So because the, the foothold was started there, it actually migrates itself into like a new venue for them to say, hey, let's extract some profit by pushing this other idea where we need to replace one meat with 45 different chemicals. <laughs> is that sort of like a, a, an accurate picture of that whole process? Well, well,
1: yeah. And I mean, not to mention the idea that uh, the problem with, with people starving is that there's not enough GMOs going around or people are doing <laughs> g- agriculture without GMO. In fact, I mean, there's, you know, agroecology, permaculture, there's a lot of emerging kinds of approaches that all leverage. They're, they're not novel in the same sense because they all leverage um old eco ecological type cycling you know composting and and etc and you know ground cover and um all sorts of things that that ecosystems do already um and why they persist so there, there's all a bunch of different approaches to expand our production moreover it's actually not production that's the current bottleneck it's it's we in in the us i, I I don't want to try to quote exact figures, but I mean, we throw a huge amount of food away, like half of what's produced or maybe more some years. Um, So it's not a production issue, actually. Um, And then not to mention even, oh, yeah, we're helping these poor folks. And the quote-unquote poor folks are saying, no, no, get the hell out of here. And they're saying, no, 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 we're going to co-opt your government and we're coming in there. And so we're not even respecting their sovereignty. Um, And, and, you know, there's a... um, there's a sociocultural aspect, um, to, to agriculture and the way we've always done it. Um, it's a non-reducible system, right? You have the farmers and their way of life and how they live and things like that. And this sort of, uh, industrialization and mechanization of, of their agricultural land and space is a complete, I mean, it's a destruction of that way of life. So the idea that, you know, oh, if you, if you're anti-GMO, you're pro-starving, I mean, nothing could be Sort of more more lowly and, and, and unethical of a charge. It's it's really a nasty thing that and, and it comes precisely out of their PR machine.
0: Yeah, no, I've I've sort of noticed the uh, the when when they don't argue your points and they just uh, immediately appeal to to emotion. I know what the shtick that's being played there, right? So yep. so we kind of yep. get that. <laughs> so so the question I have for you on that front is as follows, right? So you you look at these these systems and these. Um, Ideas. Where did this idea even come from? Why would somebody think, hey, you know what? Here's a good idea, something that's natural and it grows, and we have access to it. Let's go build an artificial version of that and sell it. Where, where, who thought this was a good idea? Like, where did this
1: even start? Well, I mean, I frankly, I think the, um, I mean, it's the dynamics of looking for ever bigger markets of a corporation, and there's Mm -hmm. an intellectual property component that comes into play, um, Mm -hmm. and so they're patenting these sequences, these genetic sequences. Um, I I think that's the business case pretty Mm -hmm. much cut and dry. It also couples to like their other products, like, you know, you make a thing herbicide resistant and you sell the herbicide, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so it's all, it's all a business case. It's not, it's not because it makes so much sense for agriculture. It makes so much sense for this company or this small set of companies. Um, that's, that's pretty much it. I don't think there's anything really beyond that.
0: Well, I mean, at least there's no um, malicious intent behind it, uh, other than just the, the usual greed that, that most people get consumed by, because the short-sightedness of this is, as you said, uh, Monsanto is being, uh, I guess, I, last I saw, there's a big class action lawsuit, and they're kind of getting hit. And so I'm, I'm imagining the, the, the shareholders are not going to be too happy about all that, and the people that are uh, in charge of making those decisions are going to have to come pay one way or another, but probably not, because, you know, how these systems are set up in that way. Um so with regards to all of that, what do you see as, as when, when does this thing stop? Like when did they just realize that, look, even though this may be quote unquote profitable for a short term, when the lawsuits come in and you go bankrupt, it's not worth a business case to even make on that.
1: Do you I, see think, that I, happening mean, I think, or we just I think you're nailing that? it. No, I, I think it is happening. And I think you're, you're nailing it exactly. It's, um, unfortunately it's not going to be because, uh, central governments are, are wise and make good policies and whatnot. It's going to be, there's a financial, uh, disincentive via lawsuit. Thank God for lawsuits. Um, and, and when that goes into those billions and trillions of dollars, it's just not worth it to try to do that business anymore. Um, so, you know, I, it, it was a couple of years ago when, when I sort of, saw the the market shifting and the market attitude shifting and and becoming more skeptical of GMO. Um, And I said, you know what, this is like all the other things I go on and on about. There's just gonna be another case where it's really the bottom up uh, route that, that, that takes care of this. And as much as I think it would be wise for um, the role of central government to really have their eye on precautionary principle and precautionary policy. Um, Mm -hmm. <clears throat> doesn't seem like that'll be it. Seems like it'll be a bottom-up, a uh, tort law, um, you know, bleed them till till they can't go on anymore type of type of thing. And I think that I you know I don't think Bayer would have acquired Monsanto if they uh, did a good job of calculating those risks. So
0: makes sense, makes sense. But I, I recalled we had this conversation with regards to bottom up versus top down, mm. and the the uh, the argument there has always been that. Um, on the whole, more people will know more things than one person sitting at the top ever will. Right? It's just, just that that's just the fact of it. There's too much information.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can I it just in, in so terms you of know. bandwidth, we all we all have limited bandwidth, and so mm. if you constrain the system uh, down to the bandwidth of a single node, you have a highly constrained system. So,
0: so, so, given that 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 agreement that we both uh, are standing upon, what is the role of government in your mind? What should the government actually be doing? Uh, because from what I understood, based on all our conversations and all the stuff that we've you know, kind of covered, is that the, the primary role of the government is to prevent people from inflicting harm past their own entities. I.e., if you're going to be a person who is a reckless driver, we can't have you on the road because you're not only putting yourself on harm, but you're putting other people in harm's way. But we're not going to find a way to make life better for you so that you can go and accelerate harm at the expense of, of others when in fact you're you're, you're really in, uh, increasing joy for yourself. So it's not like we we're, we're trying to make the market so that it makes you rich. We're going to make the markets in such a way that your your bad decisions don't make everybody else
1: poor. Well, okay. So so you asked the question in kind of a loaded way because you said government mm-hmm. and it's right. sort of like, well, which government at what scale?
0: So right, what enough.
1: what my town government is concerned with should be very different than what uh uh, you know, the federal government should be concerned with, should be different than what the state is concerned with, et cetera. And so, um, you know, and and I think that it's a great way to think about what you brought up with, you know, what is the sort of scale at which I might bring harm onto others? Um, and, you know, let's let's take the town example. Maybe, the, maybe it makes sense for the town to have a, a sound ordinance because, you know, if I um, – Play my drums out by the the neighbors every day for 10 hours a day. You know, I'm kind of now I'm infringing on their uh, quiet enjoyment. And so maybe the town has something to say about that. Maybe that's legitimate. Now, should the federal government be instituting a sound ordinance? Uh, on me? No, of course not. It's an absurd mismatch of scale. But these kinds of things happen all the time. I mean, w- the central government does, for instance, uh, uh, something that the scene brought my attention to. It's a pretty funny one. Uh, like, the EU has some regulations about the speed at which uh, tractors, windshield wiper blades, oscillate. What? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's like this mismatch of scales. Like, why the hell would they ever be concerned about that? Why is that? Why are they spending their time, money, Drawing up these regulations, enforcing them, et cetera. This is absurd. So um, there needs to be a, a matching of scales. So for something like a GMO problem, where you have this um, this upper bound on scale is is essentially non-existent, um, mm. then all of a sudden you have a case where, okay, now you need a, a more central government to to address this. But it's it's you should be as as judicious as possible with. Um, with instituting things locally and only scale up when there's a very strong case to be made that this problem or this issue or whatever cannot be addressed at smaller scales.
0: Right. So so leading that's a perfect segue into the next question, which is as follows. So let's take the localist approach to these to these solutions at our scale, which is fine and, and totally agreeable. Now you kind of balance that from a from a global point of view, where you have, let's say, China and Russia and all these sort of places where power is centralizing into basically the hands of one person and they're attacking your infrastructure and they're attacking and stealing your trade circuits and whatnot, should you fund the NSA to defend all this because that's the argument you're using for it? Or should you say, well, listen, the fact that they're pursuing those goals is secondary to the fact that they're going to bring upon their own collapse simply because they have this um, epistemic humility that is missing from them to recognize the fact that Putin cannot run an entire country the size of Russia. Neither can Xi Jinping. So perhaps the better play is long-term disengage and, and, and let them collapse under the assumption of their own weights, right? Or the weight of their own assumptions.
1: So, so I mean, there's something to be said for, you, you know, you identify something as fragile. Well, mm. then how much do we need to be the agents of its, its shattering? Um, mm. and, and in a lot of cases, you know, probably pretty pretty wise to, to stay out of things um, because the unintended, the unintended consequences are so numerous and, and potentially so... Uh, large-scale now but you know one of the things that it makes sense for instance to have at our federal level is defense Um, and that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that we always take the right strategy doesn't mean we always do the right thing but there is a kind of um, imperative there where if you just lower your guard I mean you're just gonna get Mm -hmm. railroaded yeah so so um, there's an imperative there the world is not always a nice friendly place and there is a legitimate role of military and even large-scale central military. Um, it's unfortunate, but it, it, it's kind of a, a messy reality. Now, what we actually do with the military is often stupid and and short-sighted, and um, suffers from a, a an overconfidence in our ability to predict and to to uh, forecast what the you know if we just topple this, then. You know, everyone will greet us as uh, whatever liberators. liberators. Yeah, exactly. So, um, obviously, obviously, we don't always make the right decisions, and we should be much more conservative with our uh, tendency to intervene. The intervention should be kind of a last resort. And um, so, yeah, so 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 we really should be Department of Defense. Is the is the bottom line? We're not really behaving that way. It's not behaving like a defense uh, mechanism, but it should be. But, um, the idea of getting rid of it, now you mentioned the NSA. I, I don't really want to enter that quagmire of the surveillance and all that. Uh, but, but, just to say that i there there certainly is a legitimate role to all of these things, and there also is certainly an abuse of these things. so so there so there is a risk associated with that centralization without a doubt.
0: So see, this is another part where I think um, me and the crew, uh, and that's usually just a band of misfits that is the RWRI guys, uh, I sort of stand apart from them in the sense that I don't really necessarily think that Edward Snowden or Julian Assange are quote-unquote good people or bad people, because the mm-hmm. line of business they're in is to be deceptive, right? So I say time will tell if there actually are good guys or bad guys, we won't know that until everything is sort of brought on to the surface. And sometimes it can happen where everything looks good even after they're dead for 20 years and then all of a sudden the treasure trove of data comes out and we say, hey, they really weren't um, as good as you thought they were. But a lot of the guys on, on the crew, they, they tend to take the side that these guys mm-hmm. are supposedly good. What's your take on that, whole, on that whole approach?
1: Well, I would definitely follow your lead in this case and I would uh, you know, engage some humility here and say, I have no idea. Because like you said, like time will tell or it won't and maybe we'll never know. Um, right and and so, you know, as a red-blooded American, I can't help but um, feel like okay, well, if someone is constantly sort of pantsing the U.S. and somehow is also never exposing, uh, say, Russia and and its misdeeds, but probably has good information on those too, I have to say, well, what what's the asymmetry about here? The sort of breaking of symmetry in that case is is to me uh, a little bit disingenuous. You know, you're you're not just a freedom of information fighter if you're holding some information back. Right. And and so is it likely that Julian Assange has held information back because it benefited him to do so? Yeah, I'd say it's pretty likely. So the idea mm-hmm. that, yeah, he's just this great guy and, and how terrible, you know, is, is kind of absurd on one hand. On the other hand, um, you know, I think public hypocrisy does ultimately bite us. So if we want to say that, you know, it's appropriate for a journalist to uh, publish whatever information they might get their hands on, then we have to be true to that. And we can't just pick and choose. Um, So Julian Assange could both be a not great guy and uh, the treatment of him could be wrong. So, so, so I will, I will just, um, like I said, follow your lead with the epistemic humility and say, I don't know. Mm. It, It is a, um, it's massively telling how much an information breach can compromise such a, say, important um, agent as the United States of America. So th- there's, it-, it tells you something about um, the fragility of, of things. And um, you know the more centralized things are, the more those kinds of fragilities will, will manifest as harmful events.
0: You know, what's funny about that is as, as the events were unfolding with, uh, with Snowden on YouTube, The thing that struck me the most was how does one person have access to all of this information? That should have never happened, regardless of how, quote unquote, talented or intelligent this person may be. That tells me that if this person was, uh, if this one guy knew it, I'm sure a bunch of other people also know this much information. And that in itself is sort of worrying because it's like, as you said, you could build this massive, powerful military. But if it's instantaneously compromised because there's centralization at different points, if all you have to do is inject one or two guys in there. You don't need to inject 50, you just get, you, you get another Snowden and I'm Putin, I inject him into that system and he's just feeding me all the information I need. It doesn't really matter if you're spending trillions of dollars on your on your system, right? You've so right. heavily compromised yourself that it doesn't really, uh, the benefit of doing what you're trying to do versus the cost of what
1: you've exposed yourself to are asymmetrical, just to borrow a phrase from, from Nassim.
0: What are I, your thoughts I mean, on I'm, that?
1: I mean, and yeah, I agree completely. And I mean, uh, so why is it that way? And part of the reason is an overcommitment to this kind of command and control mindset, which is really a centralization mindset, and the idea that there's uh, sort of a central manager that can control the permissions and this and that. And we built all of our infrastructure that way with those assumptions. Um, but you know, one one of the sort of concepts that I rail on on Twitter a bunch and uh, have done some writing on is this idea of selective permeability. And mm-hmm. um, this, is, this is just the basic biological fact that everything we know to be alive is bounded by membranes. Both your cells have a membrane, then at the organism level, you have skin, you have organs, you know, you have certain, you know, your mouth, you're supposed to eat through your mouth, etc. cetera. And so mm-hmm. you, you have this kind of, you're an open system, so you're permeable, but that, that permeability is, is selective and that selection, you know, what comes in, what doesn't, is determined very locally, hyper-locally. There's no sort of global policy that sets that. Um, And so with respect to to IT infrastructure, um, we've built things around the concept of um, central management command and control. And we probably should have been thinking in terms of decentralized, modular, selectively permeable, and, and sort of that access uh, being limited locally, not, not by a central controller. Uh, that's a pretty big uh, frame shift to take, and it would, would end up in a completely different looking um, kind of IT infrastructure.
2: Right, makes sense.
1: You know, this is something uh, that, you know, our friend Trishank talks about is, you know, forget about, you know, how can we make this thing impenetrable so build with the assumption that it will be penetrated and, uh, and then go from there, and, and, and this is a very um, risk-savvy way to look at the things.
0: No, 100%. Trisha is one of the smarter guys that, are, uh, that, that we interact with. But uh... So inclusion means nothing without the ability to exclude. Would you agree, and if so, would you expand on that?
1: Could you, could you ask again? I didn't quite catch that.
0: Uh, so I was saying, like, inclusion means nothing without the ability to
1: exclude. Uh-huh. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And once again, this is a symmetry. So, I, so I, a- I would agree with that. And, okay, so you asked me to expand. Um, I will agree with that. Now, in a, from a social standpoint, we should be um, sensitive to why or how we exclude. Right. But the idea of... Uh, exclusion is always bad or, or always you know say bigoted or something like that is absolutely absurd without um, without the ability to to um, generate an internal environment, um, biology doesn't exist. so the internal environment and you know the terms like homeostasis, homeodynamics these are the conditions that make complex life possible um, so you, without that sort of dichotomy or duality of, of sort of inside and outside and a boundary that separates them you really don't have living systems and i consider social systems to be living systems and i think that it's reasonable to to treat them that way and when you look mm-hmm. you see that um boundaries and territory are are very old and 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 go they exist in ecosystems outside of of humans so it's not some human invention now that being said one of the Um, points of tension we find in the modern world is this interaction between genuine boundaries sort of emergent bottom-up or or even physical geographical boundaries and top-down imposed administrative bureaucratic boundaries Um, and, and when those don't match you get a a lot of of tension and a lot of conflict and so um, that boundaries exist and are essential shouldn't be confused with the idea that every boundary makes sense and it should always be imposed as it is today. Um, so, so it's a delicate balance. I, I just, the, the social conversation tends to go in the direction of sort of boundaries or borders are, are bad and unethical. And it's just, it can't be that way. Um, the, 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 oh, oh, complex systems are open systems, meaning they, they, um, take in and export matter and energy, and then do something with that on the inside. And um, w- w- without that ability to manage what's coming in, uh, you're basically uh, infected, for, for lack of a better word.
0: No, it's, in, in that sense, I, I look at it in the following way, right? So as you just stated, um, in and out, mouth and anus for food and waste, that's great. Right. We have... We have fences to keep our neighbor. Otherwise, nobody mows the lawn because he's supposed to do it. I didn't do it. He's going to do it. I'm, I know I shoveled his driveway. That whole thing, boundaries actually give us places where we could say, I have ownership over this area, which means it's my responsibility. Yes. And, and, the abil- and the ability to, to to take that idea and just throw it away, um, like one of the conversations you could have with people is say, listen, the computer that you have, it has an inbound method from which you could tell it what to do. You have to write code to it or you have to have a user interface for it. Otherwise." Slamming it is not going to like I always give the simplest example. I'm like, okay You don't want boundaries. I want you to think of the following boundary I put a passcode on my phone and you could bring the entire US military with all the brute force of the F-35 fighter jets and the the tanks and you're not going to crack the password because that Mm -hmm. boundary is specific to that particular uh, Interface and Mm -hmm. so for people to say that. Oh, we need uh, open borders or we need all the borders closed off. I'm like no no you need to understand the concept of, you know, allowing things to come in and out. And we actually have that. It's called legal immigration. Right. And, and they, they always conflate this with, oh, everybody's an asylum seeker. and Obviously, that's not true. Right. So, unfortunately, in in, in the conversation of these particularly heated moments in, in, in the current climate, uh, nuance is the first thing that gets killed. Right. And then right. Aurelian conversations come about and everybody's a racist and nobody's a racist. And it, it turns into this mosh pit of just noise. Right. Right. So, so the question no, I, that, I agree to, Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, so the question for you on that front is given your understanding of complex, uh, complexity and scale, we've never had this much information flowing this fast through this many people. So where does it go from here?
1: Well, you know, one of the places it's already started to go, pretty obviously is uh, w- which a lot of people did not anticipate is in the um, formation of social groups that are non-local but that those social groups themselves have boundaries and they sort of have an inside and an outside. So everyone, everyone that's, that's not fair, but many people expected from the internet that sort of culture would homogenize, uh, people would all kind of integrate, everyone would kind of get used to each other. Um, but what's actually happened is that we've, we very rapidly, uh, refragmented into sort of small clusters. Um, and, and so a lot of people feel kind of upset by that, that sort of that's not how it should go or something like that. Uh, I think it's very human. Um, and, and, you know, as mentioned before, we're bandwidth limited is one way to think about it. And so it's not just because of taste or preference or anything. It's the fact that there's only so many individuals you can know. Right and 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 you know building trust in a human way is is something that occurs between individuals, not between classes of individuals or anything. So, um, you know, this sort of clustering and and fragmentation and decentralization of these social networks, I think, is uh, something that was mostly unanticipated, but is very clearly the case. And if you think of sort of a physical or chemical kind of model of, of phase separation. You know, in some ways, we're becoming more different by being interconnected because we can observe one another um, in a pretty high granularity way and and discover the ways in which we are different that we had no idea about before, and that can serve to amplify those differences as much as it could serve to integrate them. And in many cases, it does indeed amplify them. Um, So, you know, one of the things that I'm, you know, you and me are are part of this is. I, as you know, I have this uh, commitment to localism, which is really the idea that you want to do things as locally as possible uh, for risk mitigation reasons, for, uh, for sustainment and development of variety so that the system can evolve for all sorts of reasons. But we also have these kind of uh, localist communities in, in this abstract space or like in cyberspace on the Internet. So you and I both kind of travel in this uh, rural circle. Um, what is that, and where is that going, and how do how do we um manage politics among these various groups that might be very distributed but share some like mindedness and you know all of our politics so far have been geographically local, and mm. something that I don't at all have the answer to, but I'm very sort of curious to continue on this ride is is where does this go with these non local uh communities and 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 how does that feed into? politics and, and politics that, that is generally um, implemented locally in based of geography. So, and I don't, I don't know, but it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of cool on one hand, but it's also just, who knows? A little terrifying on
0: the other hand. Yeah, no, because yeah. I'll give you an example of this. Um, there's um, uh, a company that, a, that a friend of mine works for. I, I think I was telling you guys about this. It's called Kale Howard. They make these uh, fantastic chairs, but they're, they're owners, and they're like, we refuse to go past the size for the very specific right. reason that we don't want to you know, get involved with all the, the scale problems that come with right. it. So what's interesting about them, because I always find it fascinating to speak to the person who happens to be in charge of their supply chain, I said, okay, look, you're competing against companies that are 5, 10 times the size of you guys, actually sometimes even uh, 100 times, because Steelcase mm-hmm. is publicly traded and whatnot. So if you decide to stick with local, You're going to get beaten by the competition in the sense of price across um across the channel you know when they when they when they bring their stuff in from china and whatnot how do you guys maintain the ability to stay alive long enough to see the benefits of your of your Mm bet? and so she had a very interesting answer which actually kind of fits into what you're doing she said you know what's funny people outsource thinking that the, the the benefit of the cheaper price is what what worth it to them what they end up realizing almost always too late is that the quality and the reputational harm that comes because of the cheaper uh, product that they, they end up importing in ends up making it so bad that they have a tarnished brand that they have to rebuild. So you have to bite the bullet initially. And you know it, it may be five, 10 years of literally grinding with a smaller margin, yet it's still enough that you can sustain yourself. And obviously, you don't completely close the door. You go out to China and you find that, that manufacturing company that is actually Um, you know, treating their workers well and their plant is clean and their, you know, their ethical guidelines, everything that that sort of we would expect from a business partner here is is not only met there, but sometimes exceeded. But at the same time, don't lose sight of the fact that, you know, this company started here and the people that worked here are all part of the community that actually helped us to get to where we are. So there is a way to compete. It's just not always clear. And it takes a bit of resolve to do that.
1: And yeah, you know, uh, our, our mutual Twitter friend Jaffer Ali has some thoughts yeah. on this too, with respect to well, how do you compete against the big guys when you're a small guy? You know, one of the I can't remember which baseball player it was, but they quote a sort of a heuristic is hit him where, you know, hit them, hit the ball, hit hit them where they ain't. Um, yeah, Yogi Berra. <laughs> oh, was it a Yogi Berra? Okay, it's always a go. Yogi Berra with those yeah, guys. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, there there certainly are niches for small players, and mm. you know, and sometimes it's true that there's economies of scale. And then there's diseconomies of scale and like the poor production quality could be one of them. Like, okay, well, you're really not producing the same thing anymore. Um, There's other ones, too, and they're often absorbed by the public and uh, or paid for via subsidies and things like that. Always absorbed by the public in one way or another. And so, you know, it's interesting because really um, obviously we're at this moment where there's this kind of socialism versus capitalism uh, idea in the air. And one of the things that's sort of, um, you know, uh, tightly associated with capitalism is this idea of bigness and sort of global monopolies and, and global corporations and whatnot. But it's not at all clear that in and of itself, um, there, there is always a pure incentive to grow bigger. And uh, in fact, when you do start to undercut the environment that sets the conditions for your existence, clearly uh, there's that incentive starts to, to become moot. Um, so, so, you know, one of the things that we need to kind of move forward with, in my opinion, is a renewed idea about capitalism where we see and, um, nurture the environment for many, many small players. And we we already have that. The problem is that the, the big boys have gotten so big that they capture governments, capture regulations, and they kind of, then can play bully and there's no longer actually a fair competition.
0: What is an absorbing uh, barrier and how do we apply that concept in other areas?
1: So the idea of an absorbing barrier, you can think of an absorbing state or an absorbing barrier. If you imagine that you have say like a, a map of a network where nodes point to other nodes, an absorbing state is a node where there's only arrows pointing in and none coming out. So the idea is that once the system enters that state, that's it, it's there forever, it never comes back out. So you could think of, uh, say, biological death as an absorbing state, You don't, it's irreversible, you don't come out of that state. Um, so you can essentially, because the future is so unpredictable, to strategize for the future um, doesn't mean to make detailed plans, it means to uh, set up your potential forward paths so there's options and branches as, as the future unfolds um, so one of the ideas for doing that is to identify well what's actually an absorbing state and staying far far away from that because that's the opposite of sort of branching options um, so imagine that you want to become a, a famous artist so you spend a million go a million dollars into debt uh, to take you know painting classes um, and there's no way to actually generate the money to get out of that debt. So you sort of entered an absorbing state in that sense. So so you always want to be thinking in terms of what are the options leading out from where I am now, not just what is the path that I expect, but what, are the, what other paths might be there if that path is no longer viable. And an absorbing state is just um, a state where there's no paths. You're sort of stuck. You're, you're never coming back. Mm-hmm
0: makes sense in the sense that um, if you look at a, a, a clear-cut example of that currently is the state of operating systems in the, uh, in the computer field, right? You have Linux, Mac, uh, iOS, and Android, and Windows are sort of tapering off because they've almost given up on it. But you don't see anybody else developing anything. Like, you don't see anything coming out of Japan or Germany or anything like that because in this, in this particular case, the absorbing barrier is too high. The cost of getting that developed, even if Microsoft tried it with Windows Mobile, the cost of getting it developed, the cost-benefit analysis aside, the cost-effectiveness analysis tells them that even if you get it on par, you're still far behind because you gotta get everybody else on board with it, right? So are we seeing a world where essentially it's gonna be an Apple and Google world? Is that is that what you see? Or do you see a, a room for a third player to jump in there?
1: Well, I, th- I think this is like a more general thing, like uh, history dependence. So it matters what Ooh. was developed first. Mm. Um, the, you know, it's You could develop a better operating system and it doesn't matter if no one's going to adopt it because there's all this momentum behind one that exists already. Um, right. so, so, so it's, it's history dependence that leads us to sort of uh, suboptimal places, but that we can't get out of because there's no, um, there's no energy to get over that, that, uh, that barrier, that energy barrier. Um, mm-hmm. So th- that's where, you know, if you are, do have a system and you know, there's a sort of a better state, but you can't get there because of a barrier. Well, what do you start thinking of then? Well, you start thinking in terms of catalysts, and this is exactly in chemical reactions what you have. Um, you have a state, you have another state, but there's no way to get directly from one state to another, so you introduce another agent which starts lowering the the amount of energy, that activation energy, to get from that one state to another. So you could think of catalysts in in, in other systems as well, and maybe if you're, you are know, have some business case, you're trying to get people to switch over to a different browser, different OS, or whatever, um, you know, but there's that you need what will flow things across that. What will lower the friction for the flow across that boundary is one way to potentially think about that. But um, with respect to sort of OS as absorbing, I, I need to think about that a little more. But it's 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 an absorbing state in the sense that let's say that we're we're scoping down to just a single uh, software development project. Well, it's kind of an absorbing decision in the sense that if we say, okay, we're going to run all of our stuff on a Linux server or something, okay, that's mm-hmm. that's a pretty core assumption, and and you, you know you potentially go and change that assumption, but if you change that assumption, sort of all the other ones rest on it, and so um, you're you're going to um, wish you didn't if for some reason it arises that oh this is a problem for us, so so. Um, I think in a more general sense about how we think about strategy and and how to move forward, um, recognizing which decisions are maybe purely absorbing. Sure. But also just sticky in general, maybe there is a way out, but it's, it's hard. And um, so we want to delay those decisions actually as long as possible. And, and this is sort of the opposite of planning. It's sort of like a, a strategic delay. And, This is kind of the the opposite of the modern sense of design where you figure out what all the details are going to be and then you go build them. Um, In in many cases, we want to leave those as fuzzy as possible for as long as possible so that when we are forced to make those decisions, they fit the context and the constraints well because we have a hard time imagining what those are going to be in the future.
0: Right, because if you start small, it's easier to back out and autocorrect as opposed to start big. By the time the information of the feedback loop gets
1: into your... "Quote unquote cycle of development," you already you've already missed the bus, right? Yep, yep. And you know what? What's so difficult for people to make those kinds of decisions is because you kind of know upfront there's going to be some loss associated with the first few things you do. Mm-hmm. It, it's going to cost, of but course. you're re- you're making an investment. You're making and 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 you when you really get a sense of how hard it is to predict what's going to happen, that investment is clear as day to make it. You know. Um, So, so what is evolution? Evolution is uh, the generation of variety and selection. Without the generation of variety, you get no evolution. Well, that generation of variety requires some investment up front,
2: right? And you don't know
1: which thing is going to be the thing that works. You don't know. And that, that's really the assumption you want to make going in is we don't know. Um, so let's, uh, spread our bets and let's, let's, um, Vary things and let's let the systems uh, figure out what actually works and what doesn't. Let's not pretend that we can do that a priori.
0: Makes sense. This is a question from our friend David. Uh, he was saying that um, can evolutionary theory be epistemologically closed? If not, da- what? David Sarok? Yeah.
1: Oh, good. And what was the last further question? <laughs> Sorry. So he said,
0: uh, um, uh, if, if 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 the epistemological system is not closed, what does it mean for us?
1: Huh. Okay, um, so you know, I I know he's asking sort of about the the Stu Kaufman um, yes. issues, and yes. um, so the idea here is that the way we've um, thought about systems historically is there's there's a system which is composed of of the parts of the system, and the system at any given moment is in some state, and you can you can define what that state space is, sort of you know where this piece is at this time. And you can define how the how uh, if you let this thing evolve in time uh, you'll transition from state to state now in something like biology so so in an evolutionary system so biological systems for instance um, it's not clear that we can define a state of the system without uh, talking about the functions of the components and and the the sort of uh, collective behavior of the components so for instance we might try to describe the state of a person and and talk about their their uh, cardiac volume or their blood flow and things like that so the reason we're we're identifying those as states is because we know that there's a relevant uh dynamic with respect to the blood flowing and deliver delivering oxygen and nourishment to the tissues so we know that, that that's the function. Um, but the interesting thing about evolution is across evolutionary time, uh, the function of a given structure is quite fluid, actually. And so, for instance, one of the, one of the ones that, that Stu uh, brought up, and in, in I think this is in his book, uh, Reinventing the Sacred, which is a great book if you haven't read it, um, he brings up our, our evolutionary predecessors who were basically lizard-like creatures, and they had a jawbone much like our jawbone they used it to um, open and close articulate their mouths and eat and fight and whatever they needed to do with it and over evolutionary time scales, to so very long time scales that jawbone um, was replaced by another bone which served that jaw function but it didn't disappear it migrated up into the in further into the head and actually shrunk and eventually at some evolutionary moment Uh, it became the inner ear bones that allowed a creature, you know, one of our ancestors to hear. So to transduce air pressure waves into, uh, you know, nerve impulses. And so same structure, you know, uh, in terms of homology, but very different function. So this gets back to, once again, this idea that the context of a thing has a big influence on the properties of the thing in a complex system, so if we had modeled the state space of the lizard, um, we would have never thought that a relevant part of that state space has to do with how those bones are, are transducing pressure waves. Um, so, so we have this situation where the function of the thing seems really important to, to describe the state of the thing, but the right. function itself is fluid across evolution. And it's really hard to say in, in a new context what any given thing, what will be the function of that thing? And so Stu makes the argument that it's not only sort of a, uh, we don't know it's hard, but it might be in principle uh, unprestatable what that state space might be in the future. Now, if that's, you know, one one of the things that's been uh, clarifying for me uh, in terms of pursuing an applied complexity science is for, for me, it actually... It's an interesting question, and I do ponder philosophically. Like, is it truly unpredictable in principle, or is it just practically hard to predict? And and you know, in principle, you could, but you just can't extrapolate in, in a realistic setting. For me, it actually doesn't matter. The fact is that we can't. Um, so, so a lot of times, some of these philosophical nuances are actually clarified through bringing this this stuff into practice and saying, okay, so in a real evolving system, we are not going to be able to prestate all of the potential functionalities and therefore the state space proper of, uh, the systems that this evolution will, will generate and synthesize. Um, so, so in that sense, it is not epistemologically closed. It is, it is wide open. And this is just another case, uh, for epistemic humility. It's, it's really just drives, drives the point home is that we, we don't, not only know the trajectory of things, but we don't know what things there will be and what functions they serve. it's It's a question that seems beyond um, our current ability to kind of model and formalize. we don't we don't really have a handle on it. and but it also has has very practical implications, not only for from the risk side and the, the taking precaution, but also from the generating systems, you know, design and engineering, how do we do that, and how do we think about that? And, um, A lot of those traditional systems engineering approaches, for instance, uh, rest on a lot of assumptions of of, um, the effectiveness of reduction, where in more complex cases where you're trying to build, say, a complex system, you know, it's got people, it's got systems, it's got interfaces, a term you mentioned before, it's got all these parts. How do we figure out how to get those parts in the right order to accomplish something? Well, in in complex systems, we have to throw away the idea that there will be a master architect who will put all the pieces in the right place. And instead, we have to leverage variety and leverage selection, leverage evolution um, to allow systems to tinker their way there. And what we end up with in, in, when we do that will be systems that um, don't always work like we expected. And even parts of those systems might be leveraged differently than we anticipated.
0: Right, right. Well, see, I, I think about that in the following way because to me, you look at a system uh, that evolves on, on on planet Earth, and to borrow a term from the same, the concept of convexity, which is that Mother Nature lays out all these bets, and 99% of the time she's wrong and she's better at it than we are. So there's your epistemological humility lesson right off the bat. The second aspect of that is that. The Earth and how the ecosystem of the particular animal or, you know, let's look at the dinosaurs, right? How they interact within their uh, environment is one function, but outside of that function is the asteroid coming or the, the uh, ice age coming, right? So there's so many things that you can possibly not know that to sit there and try to assume that you will know and plan for all those things is inevitably going to lead you to failure because all your, the, the, the more assumptions you have built around your concepts, the more mistakes you're going to make because the feedback loop from reality to where you are actually designing and implementing is going to get further and further away. And so the solution from what I've been able to experience is to do what Ken Thompson and um, uh, Dennis Ritchie did when they designed Unix, which was to, to build a function that does one thing, but does it really well. And then let it evolve from that because you know you don't know what you're going to need tomorrow. You don't know if you're going to need grep. You don't know if you're going to need the ability to send uh, files through a uh, spell checker and spit that back out into some other formatting system. So all those pieces are components that can stand alone on their own, but if you piece them together orthogonally, it gives you the ability to maintain the flexibility that, that is the only thing that's gonna allow you to survive. Because if you're rigid in, in your upfront structure, you're not necessarily going to set yourself up for success in a time span that may be as short as tomorrow or as long as 10 years from now.
1: I mean, that, that, yeah, it's totally true. And, and you know with respect to, say, software development, computer science, that's why um, composability is so essential so that um, when you, you can structure a bunch of sort of atoms or components in a novel way and uh, everything plugs into each other, plays nicely, and because you don't know what the actual role in, in a given configuration a thing will serve. So it's better to keep it small and quote unquote simple so that it can be plugged into a whole bunch of different contexts and serve the context and not, and you don't have to assume or imagine what those contexts will be. I mean, this is why the internet, uh, you know, the HTTP protocol is so powerful, right? Because it doesn't assume much at all about uh, what you're going to pass along, and mm. no one really imagines social media, for instance. Um, right. But it's, perf- it's perfectly happy supporting that, and um, you know, and, and moreover, the the sort of um, what's the right computer science term? The sort of stateless architecture. Um, right. It, it is so essential because it, it once again you're you're reducing the number of assumptions you're making about uh, the other thing how the other thing will be uh, how much they need to know about what one another are doing the parts uh, to do the right thing etc um, so mm-hmm. there's this sort of two there's this kind of um, two seemingly opposed kinds of patterns uh, but both really essential one is composability so that you can take a bunch of things and and put them together into a new configuration that might be a new hole that does something novel. And as well, sort of the the other force is that when something is really tightly fit um, internally for the sort of purpose built, this generally comes out of a process, not of pasting together, but of a single hole that progressively differentiates into what you can perceive as components or parts. And, but one of the features of a system like that is they tend to um, sort of, uh, be, uh, let's just say they die all at once, you know, think of, uh, any kind of multicellular organism. Um, you know, you mess, you take out the lungs dead, take out the heart, it's dead, take out the brain, it's dead. So, so there's this nice, uh, sort of form fittedness you can get from a process like that, but it comes along with that fragility. So there's these kind of two, uh, different forces call them at at play in the, in in systems. And and we, we need them both and we use them both
0: yeah, no. the the ironic example of that is just recently you take Instagram and you swallow it whole into the, the beast that is right. Facebook to give you the leverage of all the you know compute power and edge uh, you know content distribution capabilities and all that stuff. and then one app goes down, all of them go down, right? So right. the trade offs you're buying into is that yes, I get all these advantages, but my disadvantage is that if you go down,
1: I go down with you. Right. Right. So which um, which is clearly it's clear in evolution that that you know. Uh, biology finds scales to, to deal with this and and sort of uh, manage those trade-offs, you know, because if I die, you don't die, but you know, if half my body dies, the other half dies. So there's a scale at which I'm totally uh, an interdependent unit. And then there's scales at which we, we statistically become independent. And and so the the system can take a, a hit say, and, and the system as a whole isn't, isn't massively harmed.
0: So you know what? That, that always brought this interesting question to me with regards to scale. If, if, the, if the asteroids hadn't hit, and I'm, for all the people who are saying that never happened, okay, leave that aside. Let's just look at the assumption of the uh, dinosaurs roaming the Earth and n- not being disturbed and being wiped off. Would did we have even bigger dinosaurs, and how much bigger would they be, right? It's one of those weird things you don't really think about until you think about scale and go oh. I see a little rickety bolt turns into the Titanic, right? But,
1: but time always delivers perturbations. Yeah. It always yeah. delivers stress, disruption, et cetera. So we we could do that, but, uh, you know, if it wasn't that, it'd be something else. And, and it, it, you know, it's just you will always get those perturbations and, and the, those stressors. So w- what's interesting is what is it about the forms that are most persistent that allows them to persist uh, despite those impacts and whatnot? The fragility um, factor. Yeah, exactly. And, and so um, what is it about those systems? I, I, I'm not going to try to make a, make a definition here, but I mean, clearly, it, it, like you said, it's the anti-fragility. It's that they not only um, can buffer themselves against some of those impacts, but even might mm. benefit from them. And I think, you know, with respect to the dinosaurs and stuff, if, they, if the asteroid theory were correct, I, I mean, we mammals benefited from that big time because it opened <laughs> up a a big niche for us to literally, uh, figuratively grow into. Um, so of
0: course, of course. So I want to take the last couple of minutes to just go through a bunch of questions. Cause like I said, for okay. you, we have so many questions. Okay. Uh, so, so this one is, again, a lot of them are from David and Paul and a, a couple of the other guys. So, uh, we have a bunch of questions. So try to get through them at the pace that you feel comfortable with. So the first okay. one is, um, taking Godel's incompleteness theorem into, into the human domain. Do you think that
1: any formal human organizational system is possible? Do I think that any formal human organizational system is possible? Correct. Um, not, not only, I don't think we even need Girdle to, to say no. Um, what's so powerful about, uh, say, say why, why is AI still dumb? Why, why doesn't Wozniak's robot exist that can go to an arbitrary house and make a cup of coffee? Mm. And um, it's because of the rigidness of formal systems. So whether, whether at base or not, and this is a, a debate we might have with Trishonk or something, you know the reality is or is not formal. Nevertheless, there's something about uh, complex living systems, social systems that allows them to behave informally. And when you have, say, like a rigid uh, formal structure... Um, many times you get persistence of the system in spite of that uh, formality where that would be potentially a death blow. But people are informal, you know, uh, I can start uh, not me. I'm married. But, you know, in in theory, I can start dating the the secretary from the other uh Part of the company, and we can start talking about what's going on at the company, and all of a sudden that exists outside the formal organization, right? But it's it's going to have some effect potentially on on the dynamics of the company. So humans are, or, or let's talk about yogi bearisms for a second. What's so right. fun about most yogi bearisms is the fact that they are understandable, but um, only not from a formal standing. They're always using words, uh, sort of, you know, what is it you could. N- you couldn't have a conversation because no one would stop talking or whatever, right? right. It's sort of like, oh, isn't right. a conversation, isn't the definition people talking? Right. We, we, we kind of understand what he means by that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not because we're dissecting the language in a formal way. It's because of the informality of how we uh, interface with it. And so I, I don't even think we need Girdle in this case to say that no, f- formal humans are. Not going to behave according to formalisms, uh, no matter what. Uh, they might approximate them in certain settings, but uh, in general, they 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 don't behave that way.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. And uh, so we're going to do this next question. It's a bit of a complicated one. So I just want you to explain to our listeners what is the definition of ergodic versus non-ergodic. <laughs> and then I, once you, <laughs> once you've given that, then I'll give you his question because it's quite a it's quite a mouthful one.
1: Okay. So uh, quickly, briefly ergodic is a system where, let's say I have a system with many quote-unquote particles, so those particles could be anything. They're little agents inside the system that I could look at and observe. Mm -hmm. If I can look at one of those particles or one of those agents over time and see what they do, how they change, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and I get the same information as if I take one moment in time and look at all the particles, if that information is the same, then we have a an ergodic system. Okay. If they're different at all, then we have a non ergodic system. Okay. So, so let's take an example. Let's imagine that, you know, it's, I don't know, whatever it's the middle ages and you and me are going to become apprentices. I'm going to apprentice as a blacksmith and you're going to be a stonemason. Okay. And let's say that the society um, dictates that once you enter your apprenticeship, that's it. That's your, that's your trade. Mm. So let's follow my trajectory in time. I'm a blacksmith. Yours, you're a uh, stonemason. If we look at any slice in time, 50% are sto- You know, – we're just thinking about you and me. We're the whole world, whatever. 50% are stonemasons and 50% are blacksmiths. Mm. Okay, that's the information we get if we look at a slice in time. But if I only look at you across all that time, well, you're a stonemason 100% of the time, and I'm a blacksmith 100% of the time. So we have 50% on the one hand versus 100% on the other now we have a space-time uh, uh, difference. They're, diff- they're different than one another, and that's a non-ergotic system. So any system that um, uh, kind of if, – if a, if a trajectory of a single agent or a particle is kind of – depends on its own history in some sense, then you're not going to have an ergodic system.
0: Got it. And, okay. and
1: most systems uh, are non ergodic
0: Okay. Makes sense, makes sense. Uh, so his question, now that we've given that uh, uh, foundation to work with, is he says, if we're moving from ergodic and entropic system to anti-entropic and non-ergotic systems, that means that human organization has moved from small uncoordinated groups, i.e. hunters and gatherers, uh, and after the advent of agriculture to I-rule-based systems, to rules-rules-based systems, and finally to consensus-based systems as a form of current democracy, Decentralization, which everybody is a big proponent of, is closely coupled with the idea of agency. Agency can simply be like a, a meritorious contribution to the whole. Uh, however, consensus or democracy seems to act as a filter or a block to decentralized emergence of agency. How do you think we move forward from here?
1: Well, part of, um, part of the idea of localism is to generate more units behaving more independently. So it's precisely mm. to move uh, towards a system that's uh, more like an ergodic system. Mm. And so, so um, what we want – so another feature, another way to think about ergodicity is it's a system that sort of um, tends to visit all of the states in the system. So it doesn't, So for instance, it doesn't have an absorbing state, doesn't get stuck in a state. It mm. will always break out of any given state and, and visit all of the rest of the states in, in, in some time. If we have a whole bunch of independent decision-making, we get something like that where all of the states are visited. There's enough independence of decision-making in the system that it, that it uh, kind of fluctuates between the macro states um, without ever getting stuck in any of them. So um, how do you
0: enforce cohesion uh, without allowing wars and rivals to get up if everybody's making independent decisions? Because as you stated, you need one layer upon which they all agree, which is, hey, Uh, do no harm to others, that's basically the general rule. Now go ahead and make your own decisions. But how do we enforce that if we allow everybody to be as independent as they possibly can under the model
1: that you just described? I think one of the questions for our age is how do we effectively decorrelate our macro behavior without Mm -hmm. trying to enforce that uh, via a central controller? Um, Mm -hmm. Clearly, what we need is some kind of systemic mechanisms, and there does have to be in some sense some agreement on those. Um, I don't think that we have a clear and clean answer to that, and it, it's something we're living through right now. Is how do we how do we get um, how do we get an organically decorrelating and decentralizing system without trying to enforce it from the top? And because any enforcement from the top of that kind of a thing is you know it's self defeating. To enforce that, you'd need a central command. Okay, you already you know game over. So so. Um, I, I, I won't pretend to have an answer for that, but it's, it's might be the biggest question of our time is how, how do we achieve that?
0: Well, I mean, from what I can gather, the, the underlying assumption has to be the agreement upon a set of values, right? So you and I have agreed upon a set of values which allowed our friendship online to Flourish, which led us to this day. So our, our value system uh, as a whole, we may agree on a lot of things with, with regards to how we treat each other with values, but how we implement our solutions to those values is where there's room for maximum agency. Would you agree to, with that? That's to, the foundation.
1: To some, to some extent, yes, but we need some kind of a minimal set of values um right. to cohere around because part of the whole point is that um I want my decision making to be sufficiently independent from your decision making such that you can observe and uh um instantiate your values and I can observe and instantiate my values without coming into direct conflict with one another. So to, to yeah. have that freedom of, of different values as well. And so there's some sense, yes, there needs to be a coherence around values, but we want to search for the minimal set of those things. And it's not clear yet how to find them and, and, and how to enforce them. Um, I, th- I think there's some hints. Um, I think that, that a lot of stuff that we think of in terms of statics, we can think of in terms of dynamics, in terms of like how we cohere um, militarily and things like that. Not everything has to be totally coherent all the time, um, right. but maybe in certain cases coherence arises, and this does happen, but we tend to, it tends to happen and we look back and say, oh, look at how that happened, rather than uh, understanding it as part of the, the structure of the, the system as such and the mechanisms of the system. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't have a silver bullet solution. Um, one of the things I'm doing is living very locally for the most part and just letting that fill my bandwidth and not uh, – because it's, it's tempting to kind of say, okay, well, what's going on you know, in California and, and get all concerned with that For as an example. Um, right. But but that's actually against what I'm trying to achieve. What I'm trying to achieve is something that's uh, relocalized, and so I am obligated to turn my attention locally as much as possible. And so I I am doing that, um, but it does leave open these questions of okay, well, when you know a global dictator comes into power, uh, how do you how do you push back against that or, or and things like that.
0: Right. No, in that sense, I, I, uh, you know, I got the example with my parents who, you know, we live in Canada, but they're constantly consumed about news from back home, Afghanistan. And I was telling them that the more you pay attention there, the more agency you lose here, because instead of progressing on what you're trying to do here, you're constantly worried about things which you have no control over. Right.
1: Right. Right.
0: Uh, so I want to, I do want to be respectful of your time. You did say you only had a few, uh, you only had two hours. So I have two more questions for you, and then and then we'll we'll, we'll call it a day. All right,
1: two two more. Let's do it.
0: Yep. Okay. So the first question comes from Paul, and he says that if there was one thing you wanted people to understand about complexity theory, what would it be?
1: It would be that um, there that the essence of a thing is not mm-hmm. in the stuff that thing is made of. But in the patterns of organization that that thing embodies, that's the essence of complexity. It's that all of the properties in the world that we're interested in, all of the phenomena, are not of some uh, substance that the thing is made from, but from how the various substances interact and and uh, self-organize into patterns. And those patterns are what the actual thing, quote-unquote, that we're interested in <coughs> is – and it's, um, it, it, it's, it's very difficult because it's natural for us to think in terms of substance and to think in terms of, um, well, what is this thing? What is it made of? But um, what we find more and more is that if what a thing is made of is at least secondary to what is the organization of that stuff it's made of. And so that's what I'd want someone to walk away with is, is the phenomenon is the organization.
0: Sure. Awesome.
1: And one last one. What is your favorite book? Favorite book? I don't know. Books and lists. Go for it. Go your top 10. I don't know. Top 10. Okay. (laughs) Um, so I'll just, I'll say, I'll say three. Um, yeah. Got to give it up to Nassim, Annie Fragile, Timeless Way of Building. Chris Alexander is one that I read over and over and recommend over and over. Um, the guy is brilliant. Um, Robert Rosen, Life Itself, another book I return to over and over, um, it really is, in my experience, he brings the most clarity to uh, what we call science and, and the modeling process that we leverage in science and what that says about um, how we interact and interface with the world. And um, he, he just sort of blows a lot of assumptions up that we're all very used to making um, I'll, I'll, I'll mention one in particular and it's the um, so Aristotle had four causal categories that he articulated um, material formal um, efficient and final well science as we know it addresses uh, generally three out of those <clears throat> and, and what, what's in common about those three sort of the formal um, formal material and efficient is that they all correspond to, um, and and this is related to Stu Kaufman's argument that we touched before, they all correspond to how the state of the system now transitions into the next state deterministically based on the state of the system and the dynamical laws that bring it there. And so it's always that the future is always caused by the present necessarily transitioning according to these rules into the next state, the future. Now, final causality um, is the idea that, so, so for Aristotle, cause is all about <clears throat> asking why and answering the question of why. So we might have, okay, so for instance, let's say that I'm playing soccer and I kick the ball and I score a goal. So I might say, well, why did I kick the ball? Well, it could be that. Well, my neurons were firing in this way. that interface with my muscle. That caused my, you know, muscle to tighten and the, the contact of the ball. And there's a whole physical chain where the ball receives the impulse, et cetera, et cetera, and ends up in the goal. Okay, that's a reasonable answer, and that that kind of covers those that sort of material efficient formal cause. But another kind of answer to why that I might give is, well, I scored a goal because I was trying to get my team to win, and you know, I know that the score matters to win the game that we call soccer. So, so. If you look at that answer, why did I kick the ball? I kicked the ball because of something that happened after I kicked the ball. Right. So now, now all of a sudden things are kind of out of order in time, uh, for what we're comfortable with. We're comfortable with things going from past to future, but this almost sounds like I'm saying the future caused the past. Right. Right. So, so so what is that? How does that fit into our understanding explanation of the world and, um, can we reduce that to, say, mere illusion or, quote-unquote, epiphenomenon, or is there something rich there? And I think when you start to take emergence and emergent property s- properties seriously, what you find is that there is something very rich there um, in terms of how causality um, gets a little more entangled and intertwined when you have biological systems that do indeed um, – perform behaviors and do things now because of the functions that they fulfill moving into the future. And so um, it's not that, you know, there's some magical thing where the future reaches into the past um, in in any kind of metaphysical way, but rather there's something real there about the systems that emerge whose behavior is in part uh, determined by uh, their anticipation of the future. So that's like one of the, the sort of assu- base, deep assumptions that Rosen addresses that, that is just absolutely fascinating. And I come back to over and over to think about how we think about complex systems and, and even some of the limitations of the current approaches to addressing complex systems. So there you go. Antifragile, um, uh, timeless way of building and life itself. There's three at least
0: perfect well in that in that regard the the uh, it came to mind with the idea of if an alien civilization visited us from december 5th to the 20th toward 24th they would watch us going shopping and on the 25th they would see christmas and they would assume that our shopping caused christmas when in reality it's the other way around right right so it's sort of to build up on exactly yep. what you just stated
1: yep great example all
0: right well Joe, I, it's been a pleasure. I, brother, I have so many more questions here. You wouldn't believe it, but I also have to respect your time. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, hey, Ace, Ace, let's, let's talk again soon, okay? Absolutely, man. You just let me know whenever you want to come back. The door is
1: always open to you. Oh, cool, man. Uh, thanks, Amber. Thanks, Ace. Talk soon. That was awesome. no, no problem.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any worthy conversation we'll ever have will inherently be a risky conversation. As long as it's open and honest where ideas are exchanged and emotions swirl. Thank you for listening, Be anti-fragile, and carry on the ancient tradition in your own unique way. By saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Ember Sadat signing off. Wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.